Hi, I'm Stephen Downs. And I'm Adam Risby. And this is Letters to the Sky, a podcast about the metaphysical iconoclasts, philosophical visionaries, and religious leaders of the world. Whether you consider yourself religious, spiritual, neither, or something in between, we invite you to take a deep dive with us down metaphysical rabbit holes and learn to see your life from a new perspective. Hello, gentlemen. It's been a while. Hi, Stephen. Hey, what's up? Hey, and everyone, we have John back. He's a good friend, and he's joining us to talk about our topic today. Grateful to be here with you. Well, we have been gone for quite a while. A lot of life has changed in the meantime. I moved from Colorado to an island in Washington and left behind John and Adam. And Adam's been moving and shaking. And John, you're probably... I never moved or shook in the first place. I would be terribly scared if you did. You left me long ago, Stephen. <laughs> That's fair. Well, we're here today to talk about, well, the conversation's about not knowing and the power of not knowing and all that's implications in a spiritual setting. And the book we, we read is called Wanting Enlightenment is a Big Mistake. And it is by a Korean Zen master, Sung San. And it's a pretty short book, but it, I think it had a really powerful impact on all of us. And, and John, I actually wouldn't, would you be able to, you're the one who introduced this book to us. And I know that San is the Korean word for Zen, and this is your kind of first foray into Zen. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm by no means a seasoned practitioner, but my, as those of you who heard some of the other podcasts with me on this channel, I have a Catholic background, but I have a variety of religious interests and have explored religious ideas from a number of different angles. And a couple decades or so ago now, I practiced for a time in the Quantum School of Zen that was founded by Zen Master Sung San, the author of the book that we'll be talking about. So my first experience of Buddhist practice and Zen practice as well is, is in this tradition. So it's something of a, a first language of Buddhism for me. And I really appreciate the approach to Zen that is short on words, but also very playful, and I'm, I'm sure we'll tease that kind of stuff out. But Sung San himself, he was born in the 20s and started teaching here in the U.S., I believe, in the 60s, 70s, along with a lot of other Buddhist teachers who have now become the seminal voices for Buddhism in the West. So Sung San is very much in that generation and had a huge impact. The quantum school that he formed is, I think today, if it's not the biggest Zen community worldwide, it's it's definitely among the biggest in terms of practitioners and centers and what have you. I had no idea about that. It's it's very. I'd heard it. I once I heard Quan Um School of Zen, I'd heard of it before, yeah. but I had never associated it with him or anything like that. Very big and very influential. And uh, I suppose it makes sense for the Quantum School to be where I first ran into Zen because their headquarters is in Providence, Rhode Island, close to where I grew up in Massachusetts. So there's, I think, a pretty robust community out that way. But yeah, the Korean Zen tradition has some very appreciable, unique qualities. And I'm looking forward to talking about some of those that we've encountered by way of this book. I shouldn't even say Korean Zen. The Sun tradition of Korea is, people think of Zen as its own thing, but it starts with China and Chan. And then in the 600s, 700s, Chan, Zen, whatever you want to call it, Buddhist ideas start trickling into the Korean peninsula. And then you have hundreds of years of development 
within Korea with their own distinct persuasion and flavor of Chan Zen in Korean Seon ideas. So, so basically, Buddhism started with Buddha in India, went to China, from China to Japan, and then from Japan to Korea. Is that the process? No, not exactly. The transmission of Chan to Korea is is from China to Korea. That said, there is some level of influence and cultural exchange with Japan that gets complicated in the last couple centuries with Japanese occupation and what have you. That's a beast that we won't cover here. But primarily the cultural connections are between China and Korea with the broader cultural community of East Asia. Cool. Thank you for the very thorough background. And I had no idea about this personal background that you had with Sung Song, Master Sung Song. Yeah, I never met him personally, but I have had very positive experiences with his students. And I think it's a, a really remarkable tradition of spiritual teaching. Yeah, it seems that, again, I hadn't heard of him up until reading this book, but it, it seems like he's really well known. Joan Halifax endorsed him. John Kabat-Zinn, I think, actually wrote, what is it, the foreword or the preface? One of those two? And he was one of his students, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of contemporary Buddhist teachers, full stop across traditions, had some connection to Sung San or the Quantum School. That's great. I know we're going to get into the actual content of the book and kind of the ways it inspired us, but you, out of the three of us, you absolutely have the most experience in any tradition of Zen. And I know as you're part of your work, you interact with a multiple different types of Zen from different countries. And I'm curious if you, you could share a little bit about your personal impressions, not as an expert or anything like that, but as someone who is exposed to a lot of it on kind of what separates Korean Zen from other forms of Zen, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I am certainly not an expert, but in terms of personal impressions, like I mentioned before, there is a certain playfulness about the Korean flavor of Zen that is very inviting, I found very comfortable to work with. Another quality of Korean Buddhism, I think, full stop, is that there's a desire to tie together threads from a bunch of different traditions and reconcile them as much as possible. So you end up having a very robust form of Zen coming out of Korea that's interested in being a kind of ecumenical Buddhism in a way. And that admittedly speaks to my personal interests of having different religious ideas and dialogue and trying to make sense of threads of continuity and what have you. One thing that I liked about, which alludes to what you're talking about, is what Sung San describes as the freedom style versus the correct, correct style of Buddhism, where the former is the wild and crazy, cusses, drinks, maybe gambles, goes out, that kind of teacher style versus the do everything by the book, straight-laced kind of teacher. I've never really, at least not in the Tibetan traditions, have someone explicitly delineate that, at least in description. I know Chogim Trungpa actually exhibited or demonstrated the freedom style in many ways, but I like that he was able to point out, yeah, there are these two styles, and one style shouldn't have a temple and students, then the other one should, and he made a good point. I like that. Yeah, I mean, certainly... A very distinctive quality of Sung San's teaching is to not get fixated on one particular style, that that's not the point. And that's 
extremely powerful, I think. Also, what book are we reading? It's called Wanting Enlightenment is a Big Mistake. That was a good, that was a good title. Yeah, it was a great title. Cool. Well, I think we should, we should get into it. I think for me, reading this book really brought me back to the foundations of my practice. I grew up in a tradition that I think you could call it Hindu, for lack of a better word, although I know that that word in and of itself is complicated. And, but from India and not Buddhism and not, not Islam, and not, not Jainism. But I really found that it spoke to me on a really deep level because I've been getting more and more into Tibetan traditions and it brought me back to the power of not knowing and the power of not having the answer. And I think for a while there, I'm very guilty of not even thinking I have the answer, but just like being intellectual about it. And and this has really beautifully kind of put me back into the space of, of not knowing and being okay with that and the power that not knowing brings, which is its own power, just like intellect is its own power, I think, not knowing. And I don't even want to say not using the intellect because that's it's too much of a dichotomy, but not knowing, for lack of a better word, is its own power. So Yeah. What's interesting and paradoxical about that is that we're talking about the, the power of not knowing and then trying to talk about it. Yeah, I've had I really struggled with that this week because I was trying to add some structure to this episode and make it enjoyable for listeners, and the book completely demanded that I didn't do that. So, yeah, in keeping with wanting enlightenment is a big mistake. All of us opening our mouths to talk about it is also a big mistake. I won't tell you that your podcast is a big mistake because that would be unfair. <laughs> Yeah, that's hilarious. I was thinking about that the whole time. Like literally every episode is us trying to talk about something that we have no idea about. We don't know what we're talking about. This idea of don't know mind is so liberating. Stephen, we actually talked about it before even reading this book about how powerful it is to just not know. And in many of the stories here where students would approach Master Sung San and say, who is Buddha or what is Buddha or what is enlightenment or whatever their question is, saying anything that would make it explicit or that would name it was always the wrong answer. And he said, if you say it is, I'll hit you 30 times. If you say it isn't, I'll hit you 30 times. And so I always read this, putting myself in the student's position wondering, well, Jesus, what should I say? And then I'm left with like, say nothing. But then you have these stories of students trying to explain or like, slapping the ground or one student showing up naked thinking like, oh, he's going to show the master how wild and free he is only to be like scolded and walking out like modestly hiding his private parts. It's just, I think it's hilarious, but it goes back to this idea of it's okay not to know. In fact, it's preferable to just sit in the don't know mind, which is what he calls it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I have found attractive about that approach to spirituality is that as a person who's engaged in scholarly pursuits with religious studies and theology, you do a lot of intellectualizing, but there's always something that feels a little bit distasteful about it. Like, there's something in the back of your mind or in the tips of your heart that's like, I don't think I should be doing this. This feels inauthentic to be because as a pra- to talk You mean as things. a practitioner? As also a practitioner? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's something deep within us, no matter who we are, that feels like if I'm going to try to talk about things that are ultimate and beyond my understanding, it's going to be wrong to try and tell anyone that I, I have this figured out. So there's a really cozy feeling of honesty when at least I have tried to practice this don't know mind. It's like, oh, 
I, I can stop trying to bullshit the world and just be honest. I love that. I really want to get into that this episode and, and for us personally, what that means, because you're describing something that I, I recognize too. And I think Adam does as well. And yeah, Adam, do you have anything to share about that personally? Or what do, where do you want to go? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. For people who don't really have a experience with Zen Buddhism or what that interaction might be like where a student asks a master, you know, certain questions and, and what the interaction is, why don't I read a page if you both are okay with it? I think it captures this don't know mind idea, but also gives you a sense of that sort of back and forth. Someone asked Zen master Song San, why are we here? Why did you come here today? Is what he responds. Because I wanted to come. Why do you want? Well, I want happiness, the student replied. Correct. But where do you come from? What is your name? Juan. That's only your body's name. What is your true self's name? The student was puzzled for a moment and then said, Somebody gave me this name, Juan. That's my only name. Yes, that is your body's name. That's not your name. Somebody gave you that name. Before that, you had no name. So this name is not you. You may say, this is my hand, that's my head, this is my body, but it's not you. Your body has a master. Please bring your master here. The student was silent. Who is your master? The student replied, I don't know. You don't know. That's your true name. Someone might call it mind or soul or consciousness, while someone else calls it nature. But your true name... What is it really called? The student was still silent. Okay, how old are you? I'm 30 years old, the student replied. That's your body's age. That's not your true age. Another question. When you die, where will you go? I don't know. Correct. You don't understand you're coming into this world or you're leaving. You don't know your name or age or any kind of coming or going. So you are don't know. That's your true self. A long time ago, Socrates used to walk through the streets of Athens telling everyone he saw, you must understand your true self. You must understand your true self. One day a student asked him, teacher, do you understand your true self? Socrates replied, I don't know. But I understand this don't know, this not knowing. That's a very important point. If you attain your don't know, then you understand your true self. This don't know mind is very important. That gives you a little bit of an idea of that sort of back and forth. Uh, and for me also, it demonstrates how insidious and unconscious our self-identity is with the body, with things of this world, with what we're told we are, where we come from and where we're going, these sort of primordial questions, they somehow become a part of our psyche. We don't realize we already think we have, or we already have answers to them, but we don't realize that we have answers to them that are given to us by our upbringing, so to speak. Thank you. That was a great, that was a great selection to read. I really want to dive into that just personally, because I think one of the things I didn't want this episode to be is full of intellectualizations. And I think that the selections from the book are fantastic for bringing one out of it. I think that for me and my experience, that don't know mind is, it's like this, well, one, there's this not knowing, like there's a freedom in not knowing. And I think, John, you alluded to that as well. And we're just talking, I'm not even talking about some ultimate understanding of the universe. I'm just talking about and being okay with not knowing. And so much of our, especially nowadays, our lives are focused around knowing. 
and they're focused around having answers. All three of us in our jobs are based around having the correct answer to something, and there is a correct answer. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, though, not least of all in the Western context where your value to society is based on your knowledge and expertise, and to not know is to be vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. I'm left with this kind of freedom, this okayness, for lack of a better word, if I was to describe it as a feeling. Yeah, left with this okayness with how I am and, and that I don't have the answers. The important thing for me that almost felt like a balancing act is being in a place of don't know doesn't mean non-action. He has this great description of like, look at how a dog behaves, or look at the animals. They're constantly moving. They're all constantly looking for food. But if you look in their eyes, they're not thinking. They're not like, there's no machinations. They're not ruminating over like where their next meal is going to come from. They're just like sniffing and going. And that to me is like, there's a freedom, right? You don't know, and you can rest in the don't knowing, and then boom, take action. You can be present with whatever is right in front of you. You be with what is, and you go, and you take action. And I I really like that. Actually, yesterday while reading the book, I a lot of stuff came up, and I, I had to help my fiancé go to an urgent care. And I realized, oh, yeah, action needs to be taken. But it's different when the action is, like, thought about and planned and then worried about, whereas I could be in a place of, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know right now we need to go to the urgent care. So go. And it's like action arose spontaneously out of the moment. And for me, the breakthrough in that is the answer to a lot of the question of what should I do that humans have. And if you allow action to arise spontaneously from the present moment, then you realize, oh, there's no I doing that action. It's just happening. Yeah. <laughs> Notice how much we struggle to, to talk about this experience of the power of not knowing. I think that's a natural side effect of what we're talking about, that you want to share this very moving experience of freedom and ease like we're talking about, but you can't. Mm-hmm. There was, um, how do I say it? It was related to what you were sharing, Adam, going a bit deeper into that experience, you know, One of the things that I'm left with when deciding, for lack of a better word, from that place or not deciding and just acting is the things that come out of me, the things that are answers that happen, there's no sense that they're worse than the decision that would have happened if I had thought about it, right? Like, I think a lot of people, myself included, say like, well, I need to have the right answer because if I don't have the right answer, then something bad will happen or it won't go the way I want. And I think acting from that don't know there's no sense that something's missing, that the wrong answer has been chosen. Like all of that just disappears. And on the very far end of that, I think Alan Watts was talking about decision-making. And he said, in order to understand the best decision to make, you'd have to have all knowledge because you'd have to know what happens in the future throughout all time to know what was the right decision to make in that moment. And, And that's obviously... (laughs) we're talking about the bounds of possibility, like not really something that is (laughs) in any of our futures. (laughs) I'm frequently frustrated by not having omniscience. It really bothers me. We've talked about this. You've been in therapy for years about that. But that's the far end. The other end of the spectrum is like possessing all knowledge somehow and being able to make every decision perfectly and, and not knowing kind of short circuits that, for lack of a better word, in my brain anyway. 
Yeah, and I think what Sangsan is getting at is that it's not that you don't take action, it's that your actions can be more dangerous if you tie your, your mind in knots trying to think about, well, is, is this the right thing? You, know, you can go in all kinds of different directions. But being really present to the moment, you're naturally equipped to relate to that moment just as you are and just as the way it is. And that's how you can take right action. Yeah, I wanted to, in the book, several times he talks about the noble, the eightfold noble path, for lack of a better word, which one of those is right action. And one of those, let me see, let me find it real quick. You just inspired me to, to go. It's, it's a chapter, a little thing called Zen and World Peace, where he talks about, someone asks him, okay, I'll just read a little bit. How about that? That's yeah, even yeah. better. A student once said to Zen master Sung San, a friend of mine is in the peace movement and thinks that Zen meditation makes world peace. He said that sitting Zen takes away the conflict between good and bad, and so it makes world peace. I don't understand. Zen master Sung San replied, Very few people can clearly perceive their mental power. It is like a magnet. We cannot see its power. But if you take two magnets and try to push the plus poles together, they will push away. If you push the minus poles together, they will also repel each other. Even a much, much bigger magnet cannot attract a smaller magnet when the same poles are lined up. Our minds are just like that. When you start practicing, you don't understand your center. You cannot understand this mental power you have. But it's still there, even if you can't see it or feel it. It's not special. World peace is very simple. It only means your mental power coming into harmony with everyone else's, with this world. Then some balance happens. That is all. But first it means you must make harmony with yourself. Nowadays, many people argue for world peace. They want to make world peace in the outside world, but they, inside they have strong I like, I don't like minds. They are very, very attached to some things and very, very repulsed by other things. All of this comes from the energy they make in their minds, which is not harmonious. So they cannot make world peace. All these world peace people cannot make world peace this way because even they are always fighting each other. World peace must be this way. No, it must be this way. That is already not a peaceful mind. I think you understand this kind of mind. So our practice means cutting off all this thinking. Don't make good and bad. We have a famous Zen question that asks, what is your original face? That is a question about attaining our original mental power. There are two or three kinds of mental power. Actually, there are many different kinds, but here we'll talk about three. Opposites mental power, good mental power, and bad mental power. Christian teaching is all about original and absolute powers in total conflict, always fighting. You understand history, right? In the old-style history, evil forces and good forces are always fighting, fighting, fighting. Even Christian groups are always fighting with each other. I have the correct way. You are wrong. No, mine is the true way. Politics and social studies also concern themselves exclusively with this. What is positive to some groups? What is negative? Which things are good and which things are bad? All of this is opposites. It cannot be fixed and it cannot really fix anything else. A little bit more here. Buddhism teaches that good and bad don't have any self-nature, so good and bad don't matter. Our focus is, what is your original primary point? That is the middle way. If you find your original mental power, you can control both good and bad power. Then good and bad power become harmonious. Yeah. Just a follow-up quote to what you said. He says, right on page one, enlightenment is only a name. If you make enlightenment, in quotes, then enlightenment exists. But if enlightenment exists, then ignorance exists too. And that already makes an opposites world. That's so good. I love that. 
and that's been, I know that that's been a topic of our conversations many times too. It's a, not making enlightenment a thing in and of itself. Yeah, and the criticism that people will have of that is that like, oh, if you're not concerned with good and evil, then how do you know if you're doing good or evil? How do you do good things? You might, you might be doing evil things and then call it good. I think that's a, a fair question for sure. What I think Sung San is pointing at, or in this tradition of teaching is pointing at, is that like, it just happens. Watch it happen. Watch good things happen for, you know, as soon as I say the word good, then it gets complicated. But it's like the world will will be okay. The world is okay. You're trying to fix it and figure it out. And that's already a mistake. This goes a little bit into a topic that I want to explore. Karma, right? So he talks about it might benefit us to divorce karma from the religious trappings in that word, but I sort of see it as as momentum or a habitual way of thinking. And he has a story about a pickpocket who grew up as a pickpocket but renounced his ways. But even as an adult, I think at one point he was at a train station or something and he saw he saw a man's wallet and it was just right there for the taking and his hand just went shoo, straight into the pocket and stole the wallet and Sung Sun was like, what are you doing? Like, why did you take that? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. It was, it was a habit. He wasn't thinking. The action just arose out of that moment and arose out of that moment because of karma in, in a certain sense. But then he was able to use that for good purposes. And he then offered the wallet back to the man. The man was so grateful. He said, oh, if you hadn't given me this, I wouldn't have had the money to buy a cow that I really needed here. Have some money. And then he says, no, I can't accept this. And then Song San said, well, go ahead. There's some good that can come out of this. I forget exactly what he said, but he then accepted the money. And for me, how I took that story was even if, quote unquote, bad actions arise in the moment from karma, it can be dissolved. That karma can be, can be healed if you take then right action after that. This is also why, yes, we see lofty teachings in Buddhism around emptiness and meaninglessness, quote unquote. But if you do look at precepts in Buddhism, there is a very, very strong foundation of ethical behavior. And I think that that is there for a reason because it creates a ground on which everything can be dismantled. And what is left is this momentum of ethical behavior where the mind then can free itself from all of that. Absolutely. Now, there's a teaching from the New Testament that, again, going to my Catholic upbringing sticks with me as a point of continuity with this kind of thing, where a bunch of people are confronting Jesus on his orthodoxy, as it were, and his reply to them is that they're best off relating to themselves before they go criticizing other people. The phrase is, first remove the log from your own eye and then you'll see clearly to help other people. I think that's the kind of approach that Sung San is getting at with this don't know mind as well. Like, first, deal with reality and yourself, then you can be of benefit to all beings. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's hard to talk about this, and, and lots of people have tried, and much smarter people than, than the three of us, no offense. Us, us dunces. But a lot of people have tried, and, and I think this 
the reality is that it's outside of the dichotomy of good and bad. Talking about it just ends up going in circles like we're kind of doing now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious how each of you see don't know mind, for lack of a better word, a term showing up in your lives after reading the book, you know? Or is there anything that you were inspired about to act differently or from a different place? Or I'll keep this a little real. Let me quote and follow this up with my experience. So if you recall, he was talking about no thinking, the non-thinking action. This is page 11. Let's say you're driving a car and somebody steps out onto the street right in your path. If you pause, even for a moment, and think, oh my God, how will I avoid him? Or stupid guy, why did he walk out into the street like that? You will surely hit him. If you think, then somebody will die. The name for that is thinking action. Thinking action leaves some trace behind, some effect we can call that a kind of karmic residue. But if you see this man step out onto the street and in the moment of seeing, just hit the brake, you will not kill him. And this is what I really like, this next couple of sentences. You perceive and act all at once. It's like a mirror. If a red ball comes before the mirror, the mirror reflects red. When a white ball appears, white. There is no space, no thinking, no holding, only action. The name for that is reflect action, which means just do it. Reflect action means there is no my thinking. So this action is beyond good and bad. I read that a couple days ago and it was extremely helpful. Like I said, a couple things came up yesterday and the day before that just needed action. And that sentence popped up and I remembered this mirror-like quality. My tendency is to overthink something, like I think a lot of people, and I'll consider, ideally, if I had my way, I would want to see every single way a situation will play out. Like the thousand plus permutations of what my actions will create, and then choose among them which path is ideal. Obviously, that's not possible. I also struggle with the lack of omniscience. I think we should start a support group. We can omniscience withdrawal. And so I just remembered, okay, just take action. And what I really liked what you said about what you said, John, was in every moment, we are fully equipped to take action in the best way that is needed for that moment. And I think I doubt myself sometimes and I, I then take action and then I doubt whether that was the correct action. And that's what I'm working on. But I do know that if, if it arises spontaneously and it happens without me thinking about it, it's almost always the correct action. Put correct in quotation marks. I know, right? We have to do that with everything we're saying. Yeah, one of the stories in the book is about Sung San telling one of his students, you want me to teach you Zen practice? I'm going to give you 10 bucks. You're going to go to a movie. Although on one hand, you could say like, okay, this is clearly not spiritual practice. This is, in fact, indulgence in laziness. But what he's getting at is that for a person who's really engaged with the movie, they're in this state of just, I'm just watching the movie. I'm not thinking about what's going on after the movie, what came before it. All kinds of judgments is that you're, you're just there. And maybe you don't want to just sit and watch movies for the entirety of your life and, and call that your spiritual practice. But what I take away from that is that particularly as someone who enjoys movies as much as I do, that there are 
moments in my life where I am truly fully present like that. And whenever I can see myself starting to spiral off into a million different directions and questions and questioning myself and becoming really inactive, frozen in this state of like, I, I don't know what to do. There's so many possibilities that I can take this sort of example of practice with the movie of just be present, be there. And no matter what you do, if you're present 100%, the right things will arise. Yeah, and the cool thing about a movie is if the movie makes you sad, you cry. If it makes you happy, you're happy. You get excited. If the movie is scary, then you you are afraid. And I really like that analogy because my initial understanding way back when, when I was starting my spiritual journey was that I had to be a dispassionate observer to all things and everything that arose, I needed to be unmoving. I needed to be emotionally still, if you will. And this really teaches, no, you just be with what is. If you cry, you cry. If you shout with joy, you shout with joy. And all of it is this mirror-like quality of spontaneous arising. Yeah, that reminded me a little bit of Trigam Trunkpa's teachings on the genuine heart of sadness, where it's like, when sadness arises, be there with sadness. Us highfalutin intellectual, spiritual types want to attempt that kind of dispassionate approach. But I appreciate having teachers who give us a little bit of a check on that. It's so funny listening to you two, because you two are very, all three of us are definitely intelligent people. and Speak for yourself. <laughs> Fair enough. I perceive you as intelligent people, but you two are very much planners. You two are very much, I want the omniscience. Like, oh, why don't I have it? I am the exact opposite, and I get into a lot of trouble because I'm so impulsive. That's why you're a better person. Yeah, I, I don't think my wife agrees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a balance that happens. It's, it's like it brings, I can hear when you two describe the way it affects you and that power of not knowing, it affects me in like, not an opposite way, but it, it's like if we're on ends of a spectrum of kind of ways of approaching something, it seems to bring each of us closer to the middle of balance, in which I think is it's called the middle way for a reason. And I'm just finding it so powerful for myself to be okay not knowing. And so even basic meditation practice, Shamatha, where you, you watch thoughts and you watch things occur, I, I watch the impulsive, the impulsive tendencies. I watch the impulses come. And that's what's usually there for me to watch, although I obviously overthink things just like you guys. But that's what I'm noticing is that I'm just able to catch the impulsiveness, the impulsive thoughts, whatever you want to call it, so much more easily now, for lack of a better... I'm catching them easily, more easily now, I guess. And it, I just noticed it's been really powerful in my life. Yeah, and any of us on any end of that spectrum that you were talking about, from impulsiveness to hyper-fixated neurotic planning... Any of us can eat ourselves alive judging those sorts of things. You know, if, if you consider yourself impulsive, you might say like, oh, well, people are going to tell me that I did this too rashly and da-da-da. And you know, a, a super planner, people might say, oh, I, I didn't take action soon enough or maybe I didn't make the right decision. And you, you can really destroy yourself with those sorts of things, those sorts of thoughts. And there really is a freedom and a, a natural goodness that comes out of at least practicing non-fixation on those sorts of things. Yeah, and, and, it, and ultimately it takes us beyond either of those 
out of the spectrum, right? Because that yeah, spectrum yeah. only exi- the spectrum kind of only exists if you acknowledge that there's a spectrum. That spectrum kind of exists, and so yeah, that don't know mind just ultimately takes you out of the spectrum altogether, which I think is so there's, <laughs> there's so much freedom there. Like I, my whole body just starts tingling. <laughs> yeah, where you can rest in the assurance that I'm not broken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's that wholeness. I'm okay. Yeah. But even the whole, you know, then we're going to start conceptualizing it. But that's fine. I think we're, I think we're getting to the same point here. <laughs> Let me uh, read a quote here, page one forty-seven. Don't know mind means all thinking is cut off. When all thinking is cut off, mind is already empty. So if you use a calculator, oh, and by the way, brief aside, he talks about how when you type on a calculator, if you want to clear the screen, you press a button C. And it just clears it from and goes back to scratch. So he kind of uses that for as an analogy of the mind. Empty mind is before thinking. Before thinking is your original mind. So if you use a calculator, first you must push C. Then only zero appears on the screen. This is empty mind. Empty mind is very important because empty mind can do anything. One times zero equals zero. Two times zero equals zero. 1,000 times zero equals zero. Mountain times zero equals zero. Anger times zero equals zero. Desire times zero equals zero. If your mind returns to zero, then everything is zero. Everything is empty, completely no hindrance. Then your empty mirror mind can reflect the universe just as it is. I don't know if we could find a more pointed summation of this book and what it's getting at yeah wow okay well i feel like feel pretty complete yeah you are complete you you are okay just this you're pretty broken steven i'm sorry to break it to you sorry i didn't want to tell him i can be both yeah it's okay i mean i'm trying to practice bodhisattva mind and oh right right i see okay steven you're you're really you're okay you're perfect it's all right (laughs) well to all of our listeners i wish you a very happy don't know mind and yeah it's great to talk to you guys again and we'll be putting some more episodes out and you guys can look forward to more i think that's a good clear way to jump into the new year happy don't know mind happy don't know mind it's like merry christmas but happy don't know mind (laughs) all right y'all have a wonderful time until we see each other again Take care, gentlemen. Thank you. Bye. Bye.